0: i الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه بالله من شرور ما الله فلا وما الله لا أن السلام عليكم ورحمة الله you not mind coming to this side so just so I can see so I can see you all. Um, Auntie, if you want to stay on the chair, that's fine. Yeah. Otherwise, you can. if you come to the center of the room, it's just easier to, to engage. Okay. <coughs> so before I go into the topic of the talk, I'm going to begin with an ayah, a uh, few verses from the Qur'an, where Allah mentions in Surah Ghafir. بعد بالله من الشيطان الرجيم وقال a'mana آمن يا قوم أحدكم سبيل that in the time of Fir'aun, there was a man who believed and he said to his people, the people around him, that follow me, O oh, my people, follow me and I will guide you to the path of righteousness. i.e. follow me and I will show you the path to Allah. Ya qawmi, al al mata'un <laughs> wa inna that, O oh, my beloved people, this life is nothing except for a small time of amusement and time passing. And the abode of the hereafter, that is the long lasting, that's the real abode. Whoever does any wrong deed, he will only be repaid similar to what he has done. And whoever does any good deed, whether it's a male or a female, whilst they are a believer, فيها بغير حساب these are the people that will enter Jannah and they will be provided sustenance in Jannah without any account or without any reckoning. So this, uh, when, when I read this ayah, sort of summarizes our objective for being here today. Our objective for all of us being here, myself and yourself as well included, inshallah, is to sort of find our way back onto this path to Allah. Many, many times in a day in Surah Fatiha, we ask Allah to guide us to Surah al Allah himself in the Quran, he sort of set this metaphor that where we are and where we're going is a journey. It's like a road, it's a path. Allah talks about surat al-mustaqim. Oh, Allah guide us to the straight path. So even though it's not a literal path, in our mind we've got this idea now that where we are and where we want to be, the end destination, there's going to be a process of getting there. The same way, for example, I came here today from Birmingham. You know, you switch on your sat-nav. There's so many different ways of getting here. You know, you could take the A-roads or the motorway or, you know, X, Y, Z. The destination is one. But the way that I got here, I could have taken a much longer route. I could have taken a shorter route. I could have taken detours. I could have stopped. If we know where we're heading and we know our destination is Allah, we want to get there with the least amount of trouble and barriers as possible. So today inshallah we're going to be looking at uh, three things. Well I'm going to be talking about three things uh, two things and then at the end hopefully inshallah we'll discuss together the last topic. So the first one is going to be about rediscovering Allah. The second thing is going to be about discovering yourself and the last thing that we'll sort of discuss together is the barriers that we might find upon this journey that we have. Now when uh, sister Tahira mentioned the 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 topic the journey to allah the first thing that came to my mind is this is a journey of discovery but it's not just a journey of initial discovery the way that i think of it in my mind is we need to rediscover allah it's not allah is not something that has come into our life that is new when we were born this natural disposition that we were on this innocence that we had in childhood that's something that we need to refind so this journey to Allah is a rediscovery rediscovery of our meaning in life and a rediscovery discovery of who Allah is and our relationship with him. Now is there anybody in this room that was not born a muslim? No? Okay. So majority of us were born muslim and you know there's a sister here that was not born muslim. Now if I was to ask any one of us whether we love Allah I'm sure Theoretically speaking, there isn't a single person that wouldn't raise their hand. We all like to have the idea that, yes, we do love Allah, because we know that that's something like critical to our faith, to our iman. We claim that, yes, we love Allah, we love Islam, we love the Prophet wasallam. But if we took a moment to reflect on what love actually is, and in our life, how do we manifest that love? Do we manifest our love for Allah as strongly as we manifest it towards our children or towards our spouse or do we not? Or do we expect that our love for Allah is something that is completely separate for our love for worldly things? When it comes to worldly things we have a, a sort of a vested interest to maintain that connection if you stop showing your spouse love, they're gonna maybe end up leaving or going elsewhere. You stop showing your children love, they're going to end up rebelling and maybe leave the house. You stop showing your friends love, you know they're gonna replace you with other friends. We've always got this desire to maintain that connection. You know, you go out with them and you text them and all of these things. When it comes to our relationship with Allah, we in our mind assume it to be one-sided. When we need Allah, we always expect Allah to be there. When something is going wrong in our life and we raise our hands to Allah, you you want Allah to be there because you know as a believer you have a connection with Allah and you hope that Allah through his mercy etc. will respond to your dua. But it seems as if this relationship of love is not double-sided because in our times of happiness when we should be calling upon Allah and praising Allah, we don't do so we don't feel it urgent within ourselves to maintain the connection for Allah. Because we know that people will leave us if we don't maintain that love and that connection with them. But in our mind for some reason we, we believe that our relationship with Allah doesn't need as much work. It doesn't need as much work. And you know, being Muslim by name is something that is sufficient. However we... Know that this is a problem And we see within ourselves If we are honest with ourselves And hopefully as we go on to the next topic You'll see that this is Without this honesty within ourselves We're not going to take full benefit Of any reminder Let alone a reminder like this Because in order to rediscover Allah You're going to have to look inside yourself And see what barriers there are That are stopping you From maintaining the ideal connection That you'd like to have with Allah and everybody is different in that regard. So, if we are to honestly ask ourselves, why is it that we have like a lack of attachment with our creator? Why is it that we don't look forward to the prayer, for example? Why is it that we don't yearn to go to, you know, Islamic talks or we don't love putting on the hijab every day or the same desire that we have to go out with friends and go out for a meal or go out to for example watch something or shopping we don't find that same desire and excitement within ourselves when it comes to anything religious and this applies to a lot of people, I, I'm not going to say the majority or the minority, but it applies to a lot of people. And if we're honest with ourselves, I'm sure it applies to many of us here at certain points in our life. We might have times of high Iman, times of low Iman. But generally speaking, I would say as, as a community, our attachment to Allah is, is fading with time. It doesn't seem like it's getting stronger. So all of us here, we've all come from different backgrounds, I can see there's different ages here, different backgrounds, different cultures here, there is one thing that unites us though there is one thing, and I'm not talking about just the people in this room, I'm talking about the people outside that might not even be Muslim there is one thing that unites us as humanity and that I believe is the craving for purpose some people will sort of live their whole lives deluded and trying to cover up this yearning for, for a purpose or a yearning for home, and they'll distract themselves with the gym and with relationships and with alcohol and with drugs and with careers. There's many people in the world that do that. But at the end of it all, if we sort of look at even celebrities, so many celebrities reach the heights of their careers and they end up committing suicide. You see so many people, just the other day I was reading, um, you know, the, the politician in Denmark who started off his career as an anti-Islam activist and he accepted Islam a few few days ago. This is because within ourselves there is an innate feeling of we want to know who we are and we want to know where we've come from. So this desire to, to go home, as I'm going to describe it, because we're talking about this rediscovery of Allah, this journey to Allah, I would say that home is where Allah is. Our destination, Jannah, is where we want to go because we know that's where we've come from. A famous scholar of the past, he once said, um, man faqad Allah. that the person who has lost Allah, what in the world could he have found? Man wajad Allah. And if there's a person in the world that has found Allah, there is nothing that he could have lost. And you'll see this. You know, even if you take a moment to reflect upon your own acquaintances that you might have. A lot of the time, it's not the people that live in the flashiest, you know, biggest houses and drive the flashiest cars and that, that are the happiest. You will see people that are maybe living in poverty or that don't have much, but they seem to have something that we don't have. You look at the, the, the smiles of children on TV, you know, in Africa or in Burma and in Syria, they have nothing compared to us. But they, you know, they've got smiles enough on, on their faces. Whereas we go somewhere like the city centre in Birmingham or in London or in a first world country, you'd be rare to find somebody that that shares a smile with you, because we live in this sort of consumerist society where we've lost our purpose. Not lost it in terms of we don't know that it that that is what we want, but we've lost it in terms of we become so used to distracting ourselves left, right, and centre. Now. In order to, for me to move on to our fourth first point, which is rediscovering Allah, we have to know why we are studying this topic or why we've gathered here today to learn about it. A hadith comes to mind where the Prophet ﷺ, he said that Ad dunya Sijnul Mu'min, that this world is a prison for the believer tul kafir," and it's a paradise for the disbeliever. And You know, these are one of the words of the Prophet that are full of, you know, mubalagha, full of, um, you know, beautiful rhetoric and exaggeration. That why did the Prophet describe this dunya with all of its pleasures? I mean, if you think about the world, there's so much good and so much joy that we can experience in the world itself. You know, think about a person who's just newly got married, or your first child, or even eating a nice meal or drinking a nice drink. There is so much joy in this dunya. There's so much, like, pleasure that we can partake of. But still, the Prophet ﷺ called it a prison. And a prison, you know, nobody wants to be in a prison. Your rights are sort of uh, reduced in a prison. You're not home anymore. Your freedom has gone so the Prophet wasallam, you know, for him to describe it as a prison, the scholars say number one is because in this dunya, we are tied by the commands of Allah. That your soul might be calling you towards doing a certain thing, towards listening to music, for example, or towards drinking alcohol, or towards talking to the opposite gender. These are things that your, your soul might be inclined to, you know, because of the society that you live in. But the only thing that holds you back is fear of Allah, or knowing that, no, this is wrong in my religion. And in that way, the Prophet linked the dunya to a prison. And there's a famous story where Imam Hajar al-Asqalani, he is a very famous scholar in Islam. He's the one that wrote the um, most famous commentary on Sahih Bukhari. And once he was walking down a road, and a Jew of his time who lived in his locality, he came to him and he asked him about this hadith. You know, in a sort of mocking way, you can say that how is it that your prophet says that the world is a prison for the believer, where I hear, as in the Jew, he goes, I am living in extreme poverty, and you Muslims are living a life of luxury and opulence. So this prophecy of your prophet, does not make sense? It can't be true, because I I am in poverty, and you are living in luxury. So how is he telling the believers that they are in a prison? So Imam Hajar al-Asqalan, he, he replied to him, saying that, In comparison to the joys of the dunya even this luxury that you see me in this is like a prison for me that it doesn't matter how much joy you can experience in this dunya it really is like a a drop in the ocean when it comes to what is waiting what is with allah and our prior predecessors they understood this they understood this having this faith in allah and this belief in Mm -hmm. allah and love in allah and that is one of the main things that we have to refocus on, refocus on, refocus on. And the sad reality is that the concept of love in the society that we live in has become so limited and narrow. When we think of love, you either think of maybe, I don't know, fairy tales, or you think of lust rather than love, because in the society that we live in, people claim that they love each other every, you know, they, they sort of spit it off their tongue as if it means nothing. Whereas the concept of love, Allah himself has called himself Al-Wadud, the one who is extremely loving. So love is a quality that comes from Allah. It's a branch of a characteristic of Allah. So we have to re-find that. Living in the society that we do is becoming increasingly common for people to become very harsh. That we don't care about other people anymore. It's all about myself, myself. But love can never be like that. Can you ever claim to be a loving person if you've never loved anybody? You can't. Because love, by its very definition, it dictates that there has to be uh, uh, somebody that you love. There has to be somebody that you're directing that love towards. Otherwise, you can't ever call yourself a lover. You can't ever so call yourself a beloved if you've never been loved. So love is always a two-way or a three-way or a four-way process, depending on you know what thing that we're talking about. And you know the Sahaba, there's one hadith that we have in the corpus of hadith that the Sahaba used to get elated when they heard it. Like it's one hadith where Anas Allahumma he mentions that when the Sahaba heard this hadith, it was probably the happiest day of our life after our Islam. And the hadith, there's different versions of it, but one of them goes like this. That once a man came to the Prophet sallallahu and he said, Ya Rasulullah Allah, matas sa'a? O oh, Messenger of Allah, when is the day of judgment? Tell me, when is it going to occur? And the Prophet ﷺ turned around to him and he said, waylak wa ma laha? That woe to you. What, what kind of question are you asking? When is the day of judgment? Rather, what have you prepared for the Day of Judgment? And the man, he sort of put his hands up and he said, I haven't prepared anything except for the fact that I truly love Allah and His Messenger. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Anta ma'aman That you will be with the people that you love. You will be with the one that you love on the Day of Judgment. And regarding this hadith, like I said, Anas anhu said that this hadith it gave us so much joy and confidence because the sahaba in themselves they used to feel that they weren't doing enough you know it seems almost like comical to us now that the sahaba that sacrificed everything for for islam they themselves thought of themselves that what we are doing our worship is not enough we need to be doing more therefore when they heard this they knew that if we fall short in our worship one thing that we can definitely definitely guarantee is that we definitely love allah and his messenger they were they could you know stand in front of allah with an open heart they could claim this love because it was true and it manifested upon their actions but if we had to take an oath that by allah do we really really love allah and his messenger i'm not sure whether whether we would be able to because we compare other things in our life and we see our love directed towards them more than towards the religion, it'd be very difficult for us to make a statement like that, which is why even this hadith, rather than filling us with happiness, it might even fill us with terror, that actually the people that I love most in my life are the celebrities, is that who we want to be on the Day of Judgment with? The people that I love most in my life are the people that are the furthest from Allah, are those the people that I want to be resurrected with? The Sahaba, the reason it made them happy is because they were so confident in their love for Allah and his Messenger. So, on that note, bearing in mind all of these things, that we have to understand that there is definitely a lack of attachment in our life. There is something missing in our relationship with Allah. Therefore, we want to know what steps that we can take in order to return back to Allah. And Allah mentions in the Qur'an, in Surah An'am, وَبِأَحْدِ That this covenant that you have with Allah, fulfill it. This is a, a wasiyah, this is something that Allah is advising you. So what is this promise of Allah? Ahd means like a promise or a strong covenant that you make with someone. So if Allah is telling us, fulfill this covenant that you have with Allah, the question comes, what is this covenant? When did we take this covenant? Do we have a promise that we took with Allah? And the scholars have mentioned this, that whether we, you know, in our life, obviously we we don't see this manifesting physically, but we have this understanding that before we were even created, there was a covenant that the souls, every soul, Muslim, non-Muslim, male, female, took with Allah. And we accepted then that Allah is our creator and we accepted then that Allah is our Rabb when he asked us. Fast forward now after we've been given birth to and we grow up into adults, etc. We become further and further away from this promise that we took. We took it, which is why Allah calls it an ahd. That this promise that you once took this in this pure purity that you had, that you once were in, where you recognized your weakness and you recognized the lordship of Allah, you need to cling on to that. You need to, in this short life that you've been given, you need to fulfill that. So, on that note, when we talk about rediscovering Allah, this phrase, rediscover, it gives us an understanding that there's something that we've lost along the way. So in order to, I mean, if you think about it, just say you've lost something, you know, we've all lost things in our life, whether it's your mobile phone or you've lost a pen or you've misplaced X, Y, Z. When you're looking for something that you've lost, what process do you sort of undertake to look for it? What kind of things might you might you do? So just say today, you know, sister here, she can't find her mobile phone. What's the first thing that you're going to do? Backtrack. Retrace try you're going to retrace your footsteps. Okay, where is the last place that I saw it? Okay, good. What else might you do? Ask people. Ask people. Ask people. Okay, so you've got family there. Has anyone seen my phone? Yeah? Sorry? Use the phone to call, call yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it was a mobile phone, yeah, you probably could call yourself. Yeah. Those are the two main things I would say. Number one, retracing your footsteps. Where is the last place that I had this item? And then number two, employing the help of other people that might help you in finding this item. So the first one then is important. If we are in a place in our life where we feel like we've lost this connection with Allah, we need to go back and think, when in our life do we remember having this connection of Allah? And for different people, it might be different things. You might have different answers at different ages. You might have felt very, very strong in your Iman at a particular time in your life. And, you know, some of us might have lost that over time. But from an objective point of view, something that I can say on behalf of everyone here is if we go back to our childhood. Now, this innocence of childhood before puberty I'm talking about, that's something I think we can all agree upon, that within our childhood... That innocence that we had and that faith that we had and that trust that we had, this is something that we have lost over time. Now, if you think about a child, what characterizes a child? You know, they are fully dependent on their parents. They cry knowing that mom's going to come and pick me up. So sometimes they'll even fake cry knowing that mom's coming, dad's coming. If they're hungry and they want some milk, they'll cry or they'll they'll make some sound knowing with with no doubt in their mind that food is going to come, milk is going to come. When you throw a child up in the air, they don't start crying or shaking. They know that dad's going to catch me, mom's going to catch me. This trust that children have in their parents is something that we should have in Allah in a far higher degree. And we've experienced it in our life. We've had that trust connection with another mortal being, but we seem to have lost it. The more that we grow with age, we should have we should have theoretically grown in trust and confidence with Allah. Because as you get older, you recognize the signs of Allah more we can sort of look outside and you know, um, think about the world and the sun and the creator and our eye and everything around us in a way that a child really can't. But for some reason, the more we get to know about Allah's creation, the more we learn about the dunya, rather than it leading us back to Allah, it seems to be absorbing us. And the Prophet made this prophecy. Once he was sitting with this sahaba and he said to them that, after I pass away... It's not shirk that I fear after me. Because he, you know, over his his uh, period of prophethood in Makkah and in Medina, he'd instill so much faith and confidence in the Sahaba that he knew that after this Iman that they that they had been sort of taking in through the verses of the Quran and the Sunnah, that any ruling of the Quran that came to them, they would take it like, you know, as if it was nothing to them. You know, in the whole of the Meccan period, Allah only talked about Iman to them, how to build their love of Allah, their fear of Allah, their trust in Allah. That's why in Medina, when all of the rulings came, the Sahaba accepted them with their eyes closed. You know, can you imagine in a society where alcohol was so prevalent? Everybody drank alcohol. I mean, I suppose you can think of it as, you know, the Western world today. You know, alcohol in the UK is a part of their culture, something that is a deep part of their culture. Can you imagine, you know, overnight, a rule being made, a law being passed in the government that that's it, from today, no more alcohol? What kind of anarchy would go on the streets? People would accept it because they have become so accustomed to drinking alcohol, it becomes a part of them. So for somebody to come and now stop them from drinking alcohol is something that is, you know, wouldn't go down well in society. And if you look back, I mean, you can Google this, I'm not sure of the exact dates, but they tried this in America In the USA a few decades ago, they tried banning alcohol and it had like disastrous consequences. It just didn't work. But Islam did that. Islam achieved something that no other civilization could have achieved. Why? Because the foundations were put there. They were taught about Allah, loving Allah, fearing Allah, knowing Allah. So now to the Sahaba, a a nation where alcohol was very much a part of their culture, when the ayah came... Of alcohol has now been forbidden. The literally they say that the, uh, the the streets of Medina were flown with alcohol. People didn't have to think twice. If this is the command of Allah, then we are going to stay away from it. Full stop. And everything that they had, the containers in their homes, etc. They just flung them away. Same when it came to the hijab, you know, covering up. It was something that was. I suppose a part of Arab culture the free women did have this concept of covering up but the hijab as we know it today was not a part of their culture but when the verses came down we know that the women of that time whatever they were wearing at that time so they're walking down the street in the marketplace they hear the, the Quranic ayah and whatever they had they sort of covered it over themselves so that they couldn't be seen anymore this is how much confidence they had in Allah so this you know firm iman and trust that we had as children is something that we need to sort of rekindle and when we talk about firm iman I want you to imagine in the society that we're living in today um, especially for the youth I would say I mean it applies to everybody, everybody but especially the youth the ones that are sort of raised in a generation of social media where they are exposed to things and concepts that myself and maybe our parents and grandparents weren't even exposed to, you know, horrible things and concepts and, you know, things that sort of rattle a person to their core when it comes to questioning yourself and your identity. How confident are we that if a person today, you know, on your way home, if a non-Muslim came to you and they started asking you and questioning you about your religion, about your God, that how can you know, your God allow suffering in the world? Or why does your God feel a need for his people to bow down to him? Or why does your religion, uh, why is your your Sharia so strict when it comes to punishment for stealing and for zina? Or why does your religion discriminate against homosexuals? or Why does your religion, uh, there's so many questions that that come to mind. So many questions that are currently being asked by non-Muslims and even modernist muslims themselves in in the society that we live in now if somebody was to pose these questions to us how confident would you be in in answering them and even if you could answer them or even if you could sort of divert the situation and and not respond to them would your iman in allah be as strong as it was before they questioned you this is something worth thinking about That this Iman that we claim in Allah, you know, every day we recite, you know, we read the Quran or we recite Salah, etc. We bear testimony that we believe in Allah, but this belief that we have, how protected is it from being shattered? Because we see this, unfortunately, Allah protect all of us, but this sort of trend, I would say, I don't know if it's correct to call it a trend, but this trend that we have of people leaving Islam is at a rate that we've never seen before in the Muslim Ummah ever. People are leaving Islam because they they are not finding the answers to the questions that they have. So there is doubt in them. They are going to people that themselves probably have doubt so they can't answer them. So how can we find our way back to Allah when we are unsure and we're shaky in the first place of who Allah is? Therefore the first step has to be, That if we are trying to rediscover who we are and who Allah is, to make sure that our belief, our core beliefs in this Allah, in this God are strengthened. And one way of doing this would be to learn about Allah. This is something that goes without saying. But if you don't know anything about your religion and about your creator and about your prophet, then surely anybody can come and they can put doubt in you regarding your religion It's like, you know, if a man was to be married to a woman and they got married without any sort of uh, background checks. So, you know, somebody came for for a proposal, you know, a couple of days later, the family of the girl said yes and they got married. Now, you don't know much about this guy. So a week down the line, two weeks down the line, if people now start coming to you and whispering to you saying, oh, you know, your husband, I saw him the other day, he was doing X, Y, Z, or he was with this person or he was in this place. You have nothing to stand upon because you don't even know this man yourself. So you are going to fall into those doubts. Whereas on the other hand, if you've got a couple that have been married for 40 years, 50 years, you know each other you know inside out, you know each other really well, you trust each other, you're confident in one another. Now if somebody tried to come and break up your relationship, it's going to be a lot harder. Likewise, with Allah if we you know we need to be in a position where this relationship with allah is unbreakable that people can come and say what they want and people have you know horrible agendas out there people don't want to see religion full stop prevailing and i'm not just talking about islam i'm talking about religion as a whole christianity judaism everything is under attack because the whole world is sort of uh, going towards this atheistic society where we don't need to rely on a god anymore so everyone is under attack so now we sort of need to up our game so that's the first thing and you know subhanallah the, the prophet once the sahaba the sahaba used to go through especially in mecca a lot of difficulty a lot of you know abuse for, for their faith in Makkah, because they were the minority there. So when Islam first came about, the Sahaba, they had to sort of conceal their iman, otherwise they'd get tortured, otherwise they'd get verbally abused and physically abused on the streets. So it was a very difficult time for them. And on top of that, they were not allowed to retaliate In the Quran, Allah revealed commands that, you know, in in Makkah, because you're so weak as it is, it doesn't make sense for you to go and fight the enemy. If they say things to you, just be patient, just be patient, just be patient. That was the sort of... Ethos and the methodology of the Meccan period, and some of the Sahaba used to find this very difficult because they were, you know, young men. They were strong men. They were used to people swearing at them and abusing at them and putting them down. They found it difficult to tolerate. So they used to go to the Prophet saying, "You know, Messenger of Allah, please allow us to say something. Let us answer back. Let us fight back. We can do it. We can do it." But the Prophet was always said no because the time was not right then. Allah had not given the command yet. So one situation, the Sahaba came to him um, and again, they were complaining about the Quraysh and all the things that they were doing and they wanted to fight them. They thought, the Sahaba within themselves, that, you look, we're, you're, we're young, we're strong, we've got the ability, let us fight. Otherwise, these non-Muslims are going to think that they're weak. They're going to think that they can walk all over us. So the Prophet wasallam, he gave them an example of, of the people that came before us. And he said to them that, From amongst the people, these tribes that came before you, nations that came before you, there were people that were so strong in faith that a person would be bought and because of their faith in Allah, a trench would be dug in the ground, they would be placed in that trench and iron rakes would be used to scrape their skin from the top. So much so, you can imagine an iron rake scraping your skin so much so that it reaches to the bone that's the kind of torture that the people of the past went through for their Iman but they didn't waver. They, they saw death as you know a welcoming, going back to the hadith of the dunya is a prison for the believer. These people with firm faith in Allah, they see this literally, they know that this dunya is temporary, this isn't a place of enjoyment. You know, if you go to a prison cell, you're not gonna find the people wallpapering it and painting it and having like lots of little ornaments there. You don't expect to be in a prison for long. And even if you are, you don't enjoy being in a prison. What you're looking forward to is freedom. Likewise, the Prophet ﷺ said that Tuhfatul Mu'min, that death is a gift for the believer. And I can't imagine hardly anybody from amongst us that sees death in that way. You know, there are people, of course, in the world uh, that, that when calamity afflicts them, they understand that this is a blessing from Allah. But it takes a very, very strong level of Iman to reach that. For the Prophet ﷺ to say that death is a gift for a believer, it sort of gives us the, the foundations of what it means to be a believer. That we are grateful and we are looking forward to going back where we came from. Because the only thing really that's preventing us from from Jannah or us from the, the reunion with Allah is death. Death is a barrier. It's not something that we should be fearing and running away from and never talking about, which is something that in the Western society, I mean, it's even, I know, I don't know if in the UK, but I know in America, you know, it's, it's, it's listed under one of uh, the psychiatric illnesses. A person that thinks about death often, they see it as a precursor to depression or mental illness, etc., Whereas for us, thinking about death should be something that we do often because it gives you that sense of purpose and that grounding that death is our ticket, it's our gateway to going back to Allah. So we see it as a positive thing. Likewise, these people, the example I was giving you of the people in the past that were tortured in, in ways that we can't imagine. Another hadith gives an example of you know trenches being dug in the ground and fire being kindled in them. So, and people live being told to jump into the fire. And, you know, psychologically, I I don't know if you're not going to appreciate how much, how difficult it is to be pushed into the fire is bad enough. But to have people standing beside you, forcing you to jump yourself into the fire because of your belief in Allah, I mean, subhanAllah, if if that was us, you know, I, I can't imagine what we would do. And we don't need to look very far back in history. This example the Prophet ﷺ gave of a nation that came before us, but we see today in the world, in Burma, in Myanmar, this is literally happening where Muslims are being burnt alive only because they believe in Allah. And these are people that are they they are not wavering, that they would rather approach death than turn away from their religion. However, us, it's not even death that is you know being presented to us. It's the luxuries of the dunya that are making us waver in faith. For those people, death wasn't even an option. One of the um, miracle babies that we have in the in the tradition is there's about three babies, if I remember correctly, that spoke in the cradle. One was Isa, you know, it was a miracle from Allah that he spoke in the cradle. And one was a baby that spoke when his mother was being tortured for being a muslim and he spoke and he said oh my mother be patient because you are upon the truth this you know sort of death process that takes 10 minutes 15 minutes however long it takes this is just your gateway to going back to allah so the faith that people had in the past the sahaba and the people before them and people still living today in the world i'm not saying there aren't people like that they are people like that That they are choosing Allah over death, they are choosing Allah over torture, they are choosing Allah over everything. But we can't seem to choose Allah over our sleep. We can't seem to choose Allah over going out for a meal and missing our salah or you know, little minor things that aren't even that shouldn't even be issues, but we are still preferring the dunya over over our relationship with Allah. So that's the first thing, you know, having firm belief in Allah is something that a child has in his parents. And therefore, if we want to start this, you know, restart this journey back to Allah, that's the first thing we have to focus on. And the next one is trust. You know, we talked about babies and how they are fully dependent, fully reliant upon their parents. This is how literally we have to be with Allah. We have to be like, you know, babies when it comes to our relationship with Allah knowing that we are nothing you know like a child can't even eat or drink or even clean themselves without the parent likewise we despite you know our age and our intellect and despite all of these things that we might have we are nothing when it comes to the, the, the command of Allah and the decree of Allah because if Allah decided our whole world could shatter many times in the Quran Allah threatens people and Allah doesn't you know do this very often but you know when somebody is teaching another person you know there's many mothers in this room sometimes you you employ different methods of teaching your children sometimes you'll do it in a nice way sometimes when you see that something is dangerous for your child you're going to do it in a more harsh way if your child is right now about to touch the fire you're not going to in a very calm composed manner tell them to step away from the fire you're going to go and with urgency you're going to say no fire This urgency, we see this in the way that Allah talks sometimes. Why would Allah like urge us to worship Him? There is no reason for Allah to give us reminder upon reminder and lesson upon lesson and sign upon sign in the Quran to worship Allah when the benefit of worshipping Allah is only for ourselves. If the whole world was not to believe in Allah, Allah would not be affected. You know, the hadith mentions this very clearly that if every single person on this planet from the time of Adam all the way till Yom Al-Qiyamah was the worst of the worst, they didn't worship Allah at all. It wouldn't decrease from Allah's kingdom even slightly. So if Allah doesn't need our worship, why does he give us, you know, chance upon chance upon chance to come back to him? This is from the mercy of Allah. That Allah doesn't need us, we need Him. But Allah is making opportunities and giving us, like on a clear plate, as it were, signs and and reasons for us to worship Him. Knowing that the end result, you know, Jannah is for our benefit, not for the benefit of Allah. Now, there's a a really beautiful metaphor that Allah describes in the Quran that that sort of encompasses this idea of trust. Allah says in Surah Luqman, وَمَا يُسْلِمْ وَجْهَهُ إِلَى اللَّهُ وَهُوَ مُحْسِنُ فَقَدْ إِسْتَمْسَكَ بِالْعُرْوَةِ اللَّهِ الْأُمُورِ So Allah says that whoever submits himself, submits fully to Allah, whilst he is a person that does good things, then he has grasped onto like a really tight rope or a really strong grip that will never ever break. And to Allah return all matters. So the middle of this ayah, it talks about urwatul wuthqa. Now, what is this? You know, this metaphor that Allah is describing—that when you submit to Allah, it's as if you're holding on to a rope that will never, ever sever. It will never fray. It will never break. It will never, like, fade over time. Never. Allah is giving the example, the Mufassirin mention, of if we think about today, if a person was to stand on top of a mountain, or a person that goes parachuting, for example, a person that goes skydiving. You know, we can think of these examples today. Now, if you were to go skydiving, for example, the equipment that you use would have to be you would have to have 1000% confidence that this parachute of mine has been through all of the checks it's not going to break on the way down it doesn't have any holes in it when you're skydiving this harness that you have and the ropes that you have that they're not going to break mid-air otherwise you know what's going to happen you're jumping off a mountain or you're jumping out of an airplane if the equipment that you've got is frail or weak then it's instant death Nobody in their right mind would would go to a company That has like um, I don't know, that you go onto Google And sometimes you see the reviews of companies You want to go skydiving And this company has got like uh, a two star rating Or a half a star rating Nobody's going to go to that company Because this is a matter of life and death You're going to go to that company Use that equipment that is super strong And Allah is giving that example That you know if you were to jump off a mountain And you were to hold onto a rope That is going to prevent you from falling and dying. This is what we call an ulwat al-wuthqa. A rope that is so firm and strong. That you have full confidence in yourself of being safe. That you have full trust in this rope. That is going to prevent you from hurting yourself and falling. This is the example that Allah is striking. How we should be with Allah. That whatever happens in your life. Good times, bad times. Those days where you can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel those days where you find it difficult to even get out of bed those days where you are you know, it's as if there's a cloud sort of looming over you, you find it difficult to do even the most mundane of things Allah is saying that he is this rope that you are that you should be holding onto this trust that you have in Allah knowing that whatever happens Allah will not let go that Allah is never the one who turns away first And the Prophet alluded to this in a hadith as well when he spoke about the prayer. He mentioned that when you stand in the prayer to Allah, it's always the person that turns away before Allah turns away. It's never Allah that turns away from the person first. We rush through our salah and we're sort of thinking about a million and one other things and we do our exercises up and down. We do our salam quickly left and right and then we're gone. We've turned away, in fact, I would say from our Allahu Akbar, we've turned away from Allah. But even if there was a person that prayed the salah in a good manner, in a perfected manner, we turn away from the prayer before Allah turns away. Allah gives us full attention. When we stand in front of him, when you raise your hands to him in dua or in salah or, you know, in any manner that you worship him, Allah is, though we can't see him, Allah's attention is always 100%. And it's very rare to find that with humans, let alone. That's why maybe we can't understand this love that, that, that Allah has for us. Because so often you go home and you're trying to speak to your husband and he's on his phone. You're trying to speak to your children and their mind is on the TV. You're even having a conversation with your friends. But you know that all they're doing is waiting for you to finish speaking so that they can finish speaking. We rarely give 100% attention to other people and we rarely receive it as well. Which is why it becomes difficult for us to appreciate the, the amazing relationship that Allah has has with us. That Allah, despite our weaknesses and everything, is always there and he never turns away. He's listening and he wants to listen and he cares and he wants to care. So this is something that we need to sort of hone in on. It's something that we should... Um, you know think about within ourselves and use it as a way of of loving Allah more knowing that he is always there for us regardless of what happens now another reason why we need to rediscover Allah is because of our dire need for him now even if Allah gave us nothing, even if there was no concept of Jannah, for example, or Jahannam, we would still be obligated to worship Allah. Our worship for Allah should not be based on what we get out of the relationship. We should worship Allah because he deserves to be worshipped. We worship Allah because he created us and sustains us without us even asking for it or being worthy of it. Everything that Allah gives us on top are bonuses this reward that we get and you know the happiness Allah puts in our life and the barakah in our wealth and our children, these are all just extras. Even if you take them all away, this obligation to know Allah and love Allah and worship Allah still remains. That's the root of the matter. So we should love Allah and worship Allah and try and find our way back to Allah regardless of all of these things. However, sometimes it's human nature, you know, we we work on incentives. And Allah knows this. I mean, who knows us better than the one who created us, which is why Allah has given us an incentive, which is Jannah, and which is why Allah has given us something to scare us, something that we should try our best to stay away from, which is Jahannam. Even when you are with your children or with your spouse, etc., we, we work like this, that you will go out of your way for for your spouse when you see that they are reciprocating when you you know make a nice meal and your husband is very appreciative you're more likely to make it the next time when your child does something right and you praise them or you give them a sticker they're more likely to do it the next time likewise with us as well we if we really sort of contemplated upon the blessings that Allah gives us we would be super motivated to keep on worshipping Allah but the problem is that we don't look through that lens we always look through a lens of I don't have enough, I don't have enough Rather than looking at what we do have If we started doing that If we started changing our perspective To sort of Maybe a good way would be to write it down If you try to write down all of the blessings That Allah has given you Even if you started with your body So forget you know everybody else Start from what Allah has given you In terms of The brain that functions within you and all of the nerves and your heart pumping blood around the body and your eyesight and your hearing and all of these things, if you were to to, to write them all down, that in itself would take you lifetimes to exhaust. You can never count the blessings of Allah. Allah says himself in the Quran that if you were to enumerate the blessings of Allah, you wouldn't be able to do so. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. If you want to, and you know, if somebody's going through a rough patch in their marriage and you go to a marriage counselor, this is something that they tell you to do. That if you are finding it difficult to get on with your spouse, you need to sit down and think and think of ways to appreciate your partner. So, little things that they do, things that might be big things or little things that you take for granted. You taking them for granted is the reason your relationship is breaking down. They might be, you know, getting up every morning at six o'clock to go and put food on the table and you disregard it. You know, the wife might be, you know, staying at home even or even if she goes out to work or she's putting so much love and effort into the food and to raising the children and the school run and the matthab run. These things all take a toll. They might seem like little things to the third person. But if a person doesn't appreciate these things, then naturally you can see that the relationship is going to fall apart. So if you want to maintain this relationship with Allah, look for, actively look for ways that he has blessed you in your life. And this will not only increase you in gratitude, that's the first thing. But on top of that, one of the bonuses that will come out is that Allah will give you more and this is something that we don't find again in our human understanding because people aren't like that. But Allah is like that. That the more you do dhikr of him and the more that you thank him, Allah will keep giving and keep giving and keep giving. So it's like a, you know, a beautiful cycle. So that's one thing that we have to focus on the blessings that Allah has given us. But the second thing is we have to understand that we are in need of the protection of Allah. And Allah talks about this protection, this uh, dhimmah that we call it. It's like a covenant that somebody takes to look after you. So for example, just say, we've got parents here today. And you say to your child that, look, if you just ring me, just say your child's gone off to university. Yeah? So they're at that age where they're leaving home now, they're going to a different town and you're worried about them. So you say to your son or you say to your daughter, look, all I want from you is to ring me twice a day or three times a day just ring me for 10 seconds tell me that you're okay that's all I want from you you know as alaikum mom I'm okay how was your day bye that kind of stuff just ring me two or three times a day and in exchange for that what I will do is I will make sure that my I always have your location on my phone I'm trying to give a modern day example. So we, we have this concept that, you know, I've got my phone, I've got my data on. Anybody can sort of track where I am. So if my mom at home has got my uh, my, my details, she'll know that, okay, she's in Coventry or you no know, she's on the motorway or she's driving. You know, the parents can keep an eye on their children. Now, what that does is it gives you a sense of protection. So I know if anything was to happen for me, I leave from here, I'm, um, you know, God forbid, in a car accident or somebody says something to me or I'm involved in sort of sort of problem. All I have to do is maybe press a button. And I know that somebody in the world, my family, my parents, my mom or my dad, they know where I am. They will send, send help. It gives you a sense of protection and confidence. But if my, you know, mom turns around, dad turns around and says to me that, look, if you don't phone me and let me know how you are, I'm going to switch off this tracker. What that does is it creates a sense of fear inside of you that now you might be you know, broken down in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows where you are. Nobody can send help even. In the same way, Allah says, you know, on the words of the uh, on the lips of his Prophet ﷺ, that, Man salat al-subhi illa. that whoever prays Salatul Fajr, that he is under the protection of Allah for that day. That Allah Himself has taken a promise now, an oath, that He is going to look after you and protect you and suffice you for that day. And what does Allah ask for in return? Not much. Praying the salah. Maintain that connection with Allah. Stand in front of Allah for the five salahs altogether probably take, you know, half an hour a day. Out of the 24 hours, less than half an hour, letting Allah know that I am here, O Allah, I am still worshipping you i am so grateful to you i am still remembering you maintaining that connection with allah and in return what do you get you're giving so little but what you get is the protection of allah that wherever you are and wherever you go in that you know day of yours you know that nothing can happen to you because allah is watching over you but the hadith goes on to mention that anyone that does not do this that if you purposely take yourself out of the dhimma the protection of allah then allah's going to leave you to your own devices this is what's mentioned, and the Salatul Fajr is the best um, way to sort of kickstart your day in the protection of Allah, because you know it's like a protective bubble around you now for your whole day. You are under the protection of the One that is, you know, the Lord of the heavens and the earth. What can happen to you? Who can? What can anybody say or do to you if Allah is your protector? If Allah is your guardian? Yes, yeah, So that's something that we, we we need to to think about. Now another thing about a lost item So if we're talking about this lost connection that we have with Allah Is lost items don't ever move around by themselves So just say I have misplaced my phone and I've left, left it somewhere That phone of mine isn't going to start getting up and run, running around And on purpose making it difficult for me to find it No, the phone stays where it is And I obviously go around and, and do what I can to find it Likewise, Allah doesn't make it difficult for us to go back to him allah doesn't move around allah doesn't turn away or allah doesn't put obstacles in our path on purpose rather it's the opposite whoever knocks on the door of allah will always find it to be open so this analogy of the lost item is pertinent because like the lost item doesn't move around by itself allah is constant allah is there it's us that have moved away. It's us that have misplaced ourselves. you can say. And now we need to sort of find our way back. And one way of doing this, well, I, I, not one way, I would say the first thing to do, we said that when you find, a, uh, when you have a lost item, you're going to start retracing your footsteps and asking other people. Now, before you do any of those things, you're going to have to make time. This is the very sort of foundation thing. If you've lost something, even before you start retracing your footsteps, you're going to have to take time out of your day, that 10 minutes, 15 minutes, to retrace your footsteps. You're going to have to take time out to ask other people. And it might seem obvious, but it's something that we don't really do when it comes to Allah. In our day, do we actively and consciously and on purpose take out time from the rest of this you know, uh, like rush that we have in our life so that we can just be alone with Allah our salah time is supposed to be that but unfortunately the way that a lot of us pray salah isn't like that because we're in the hub of so much chatter and laughter and you know we just want to finish our salah so we can get back to work or get back to the kids or get back to family we don't really free our time for the sake of Allah and that's something that everybody is capable of it's just about making the conscious effort to do so Everybody's lifestyle is different. For some people, you might work better in the morning. Some people maybe in the daytime when all the kids are at school. Some people right before you go to sleep. There has to be time outside of the salah, outside of you know the, the general worship that we have to make time where it's just you and Allah. Where you are just reflecting and doing dhikr of Allah. And Allah says, again on the lips of the Prophet wasallam. Ibn Adam أم لا Amla ghinan that O son of Adam or O you know daughters of Eve, O mankind, that if you free yourself up for me, you free yourself up, as in you make time for me, Allah is saying, I will fill your heart and your life with richness. And if you don't do so, I will make you chase the dunya, but you won't get anything out of it. And this, I would say, is the concept of barakah that Allah is talking about. That if you take out a tiny portion of your day, of your life, for the sake of Allah, you will see the rest of your life falling into place. And Allah will put so much barakah and so much happiness and contentment into your life that whatever you have will be sufficient. The relationships and your wealth and your children, everything will fall into place. But if you don't do that, Allah is saying, that if you don't make time for me, this rat race of the dunya will continue, you will see, I will allow you to, to carry on, you will be doing your 9-5 to five jobs and running around with the kids and the in-laws and the X and the Y and the Z, but you won't find any barakah, you'll be constantly on this you know, treadmill, on the fastest speed in life, just going through the motions, but you won't get any contentment out of it, this way to get this love and this peace back into your life is by taking time out for Allah, You give a little bit to Allah and Allah will suffice you for the rest of your day. And this is, you know, subhanAllah, again, the sunnah of Allah. That Allah doesn't ask for much. All Allah asks for is for a person to take the first step. Allah says in the Quran that Allah will not change the state of a people until you change what is within yourself. But once you've made that intention that, oh Allah, there is a problem in my life. Or, Ya Allah, I recognize that there is a lack of attachment. Ya Allah, I recognize that I've been doing things wrong. Ya Allah, I recognize that I've been focusing my energy on the wrong things. Ya Allah, I appreciate now that I want to get closer to you. you making that intention is sufficient for Allah now to open doors for you. That you take one step to Allah, the hadith Qudsi mentions, and Allah comes towards you swiftly. That you walk to Allah and Allah comes to you at speed. So what you give in is always, always going to be less than what you get from Allah. This is, you know, the way that Allah is. Because he is al Karim. he is generous to the amount of no limit in a way that we can't even comprehend. Now, the next thing that we're going to move on, I think we'll take, um, I don't know, a little bit of a break before we move on to the next thing, which is going to be um, what practical steps... Could we take in order to find Allah again? Like what do we start with? If we sort of understand now that yes, okay, there's a problem in this connection that I have with Allah, what should we begin with in order to fix this problem? So I've alluded to a couple of the things. Making time for Allah, never missing your salah, especially Salatul Fajr. These are things that we should be doing. But there are some things that are a bit more basic, hopefully, that inshallah we we, we will be moving towards. I mean, do we, shall we take a break here? Does anybody want to pray? Or are you lot okay to carry on? What do you lot think? If anybody wants to Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So going back to where we sort of left off regarding rekindling or refinding this, this lost connection with Allah. So practical steps that we can take to sort of get back on this journey. I would say one of the best ways to bring back the love and the excitement of childhood is to really fall in love with the symbols of Allah again. So if you think about when you were a child, maybe if you remember, or even children around you in your home, where they are so eager to do whatever the mom or the dad are doing. So children love to go to the masjid. Generally, it's us that sort of dampen their spirits. You know, young girls, they love wearing the hijab if mom is wearing it. Or they love copying you when you're praying salah. This love that they have for the symbols of Allah is something that we lose over time because we become so obsessed with what society thinks. But children aren't like that. Children are very pure in their nature. So Allah even in the Quran, he alludes to this by saying وَمَنْ That whoever honors the signs or the symbols of Allah, that indeed that is from the purity of hearts. What are the symbols of Allah? You know, the way that a child doesn't really focus too much on the interior. They focus a lot on the exterior of things. So you might have like a really nice auntie and a really horrible auntie. Children don't know the the subtleties. They don't know the nuances of who's good and who's bad. They'll just look at, okay, this person is nice to me, therefore they're a good person. This person looks like this, therefore they're like this. Now, as Muslims, we shouldn't be obsessed with the exterior. Because Allah says that he isn't going to look towards our... Forms and our beauties. Allah looks at what is in the heart. Our intention always has to be Allah. That we are always doing things for the sake of Allah. Always doing things that lead us back to Allah. But I would say after we've made that intention. Like a lot of us here today. If we made this intention that we need to do something now. In order to rekindle our relationship with Allah. The interior is being worked on now. Slowly, slowly. One of the best ways to... Keep that interior going is by focusing on the exterior now. There's a lot of people that think that, you know what, I'm not good enough to wear the hijab, or I'm only going to stop praying when I stop committing sins, or how can I go to the masjid when I dress like this? So people, you know, make these assumptions in their mind, not knowing that these are attacks of shaitan. Shaitan wants you to think like that rather the way that the psychology of a person works is that if you change your exterior the inside automatically generally follows like the Arabs say that the outside is a tabi it's a follower of what is on the inside therefore the way that a child has all this excitement when it comes to Islamic symbols I would say this is something that we need to bring back because looking the part will make a difference to you if a person is constantly dirty, person is constantly in a state of impurity, you're never in the state of wudu, or a person is in the state of ritual impurity all the time after intimacy, they don't have a ghusl, or they don't ever do wudu, or their nails are always dirty, or their face, they never brush their teeth. These are things that are gonna withhold you from getting close to Allah because Allah is pure and Allah loves everything that is pure. And likewise, when it comes to the angels, The Prophet said in a hadith that a person that comes to the masjid shouldn't even eat onion or garlic because anything that harms people also harms the angels. So as people, we don't like bad smells, we don't like bad odors, we don't like, you know, scruffy looks. Likewise, the angels don't like that. If in our life we are doing things that are driving away the angels, you can imagine that our connection to Allah, we're putting barriers on this road. The road to Allah is a free sort of highway but it's us that puts the blockades and the barriers with our sins and with our preconceptions, etc. So one of the best things that we can focus on is looking the part. Look like a Muslim. Even if your inside won't be perfect, there's going to be nobody on this planet that can claim to have a perfect heart. But start wearing the hijab properly. Start observing you know, modesty properly. For the men, if they start observing the sunnah of the beard... You start going to the masjid. You start. All of these things will play a part, because, like I said, Allah is pure and He loves things that are pure, and this psychology of preparation is something that is very powerful as well. Imam uh, Imam Ghazali he mentions regarding the wudu. If you think about praying Salah, we know that praying Salah is like one of the main pillars of Islam. It's one of the best ways to get closer to Allah. The whole of the Salah, right from the Allahu Akbar to the Assalamu Alaikum, is a glorification of Allah, which is why it's so beloved to Him. But what need was there for Allah to stipulate that you have to pray Salah in the state of wudu? That the wudu itself is not the ibadah, the wudu is not the worship, but we do that in order to pray. Why? Because you are getting yourself physically. Therefore, mentally and spiritually ready for the salah. So the wudu is there as a gateway. The wudu is a key for the salah. Why? Because in Islam we recognize the importance of the external appearance. That if you are gonna pray salah whilst you're you just got out of bed and your face isn't washed and your teeth are dirty and you're smelling, how much of a connection can you have to Allah? It's almost impossible. So Allah, Islam has put a way. Of us to ensure that we are physically clean before we even start the prayer so yes as Muslims you make sure that you are clean and you uh, try and be in a state of wudu all the time and this is a good way of, of trying to if a person has a particular sin that they keep falling into if you make sure that you are in a state of wudu all the time a time will come where that wudu and that salah itself will stop you from that sin yeah because a pure body leads to a pure heart and a pure heart is our objective. That's what we want. Allah says that whoever comes to me with qalbun salim, whoever comes to me with a pure and an intact heart, these are the people of success. So anything that can lead to the purity of the heart, we need to focus on. So try and be in a state of wudu. This was one of the, the main um, uh, virtues of Bilal radiallahu anhu. When the Prophet ﷺ went for mi'raj, he heard somebody's footsteps. And upon inquiry, he, heard that these, he found out that the footsteps that he heard in Jannah above the seven heavens were the footsteps of Bilal anhu. And when he asked him, what is it that you do, Bilal, that's so beloved to Allah that I could hear you all the way up there? And Bilal anhu, said, I, I don't know, but the only thing that I do regularly is as soon as my wudu breaks, I will renew it. As soon as wudu breaks, renew it. So you are constantly in a state of purity. And that way your um, your heart will facilitate for you to do better things and get closer to Allah. Um, the second thing I would say when it comes to the sha'ir, the symbols of Allah, is to maintain a link with the masjid. The masjid, the masajid are the houses of Allah. They are those places that Allah has stipulated on the earth that have been designated for his remembrance. The houses of Allah, they have a a strong sort of connection to the religion. Because within the walls of a masjid, there is no sin. There's only people praying and reading Quran and doing dhikr. There's, There's a lot of barakah that comes with the masjid. Therefore, even if we're not perfect, we have so many weaknesses within ourselves and sins that we commit. The more you frequent the masjid, the more easier it will become for you to get rid of the attachment of shaitan and make this attachment to Allah stronger because these are the houses of Allah. And Allah says in the Quran that <laughs> That the people who maintain the masjids of Allah are only those who believe in Allah. Allah gives, like, He speaks about them in very high terms. And the pious people of the past, they used to say that if you ever come across a person that does the service of the masjid, like for example, the person that opens up the masjid every day, or the person that does the vacuum in the masjid, or the person that cleans the toilet, or a person that contributes in any way at all to the masjid, if you ever come across one of them, then bear testimony that these are people that are true Muslims. Why? Because Allah says in the Qur'an, that only those people that believe truly in Allah Allah allows them to maintain the masajid So if you can volunteer at the masjid At your local masjid Even if it's once a week, once a month Whatever it may be Even if it's just in Ramadan for example But start off This is something that will you know, fast forward you on this path On this journey that we have Because these are the houses of Allah And Allah promises that are characteristic of those people Is firm belief in Allah And that's what we want to get back to yeah, so going to the masjid yourself, encouraging your children, your sons, your daughters, finding opportunities to go to the masajid, setting up things yourself. You know, if your masjid, local masjid isn't doing much, then the masjids are not like linked to a certain cult or certain part of society. They are for everybody. So if you have something to offer, start off a coffee morning, start off a, a tafsir class, start off anything. Contact speakers, female speakers, male speakers, that can come and revive the masjid again. The masjid is not supposed to be a dead place. In fact, it's supposed to be the hub of the community. But that obligation of making it a hub lies upon the whole of the community. It doesn't just lie with Imam Saab or the Mu'addin or whatever. Everybody is responsible. This is your masjid. So if you want it to be like a a strong part of society so your children look forward to coming here, do things that will make it look nice and attractive and attract the youth uh, and attract people coming here as well. The next thing when it comes to the sha'air of Allah, would be to imitate good people. Yeah, To imitate good people. There's a famous quote that somebody, I can't remember who it was, but one of the famous uh, uh, pious predecessors, he used to say that, I hang around with people that are good, even though I am not from amongst them. By doing that, I hope that one day their effects will rub off on me so you don't have to be like a super pious person to sit with the 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 teachers in the masajid or to create a friendship with you know your children's maktab teacher or your local alima that you know go and you know speak to her take her out for a coffee the more you spend time with good people the more their effects will rub off on you this the prophet he likened a good friend to a person that smells perfume If you were to go to um, third floor Selfridges and you just walk around the perfume area, you don't even buy anything, you're going to come home smelling nice. Your coat will smell nice. Your abaya will smell nice. Just because you were in a good environment. Likewise, if you spend time with bad people, you don't have to say anything or do anything, but their bad effects, the bad sort of vibe that they have is going to affect you. Because if you spend time with people that the angels don't like being close to, then that's going to extend to you as well. Likewise, if you spend time with people that the angels are happy with and, you know, that are close to Allah, that will have an effect on you as well. So hang around with good people. You don't need to... Um, no, I remember when I was at university, there, there's always this thing that when you start university and you're in your new environment, people make friends. And you know, the friends that you make at university, generally, you, you stay with them for a very long time. But how you decide who your friends are, you know, there's a very interesting psychology behind it. And a lot of work, I remember one of our modules in psychology was about this, that when you make attachments and when you make relationships, what is it that you're looking for? So just say in this room here, about 20, 30 people, if a new sister was was to come, what attracts her to go and sit next to this sister here rather than the sister over there? Or when you go to a new gathering, what draws you to a certain sister rather than another one? There's like a very like, sort of deep process to it and we need to be on top of that process that look for people that have signs of goodness in them because hopefully over time, the more you spend time with them, the more they will motivate you. Rather than being with people that are lazy in their salah, they don't care if they pray salah late or where they go and they're a bit loose about where they eat and where they drink and they're not really fussed about halal and haram. These are things that are going to affect you. so hang around with good people and one of the best things that will come out of that is a sense of competition that will sort of rekindle inside of you if you have friends in your life that motivate you to worship Allah they are the best friends that you could ever ask for because they are people that are dragging you towards Jannah Whereas people that sort of put you down that, you know, forget praying yet, you know, let's finish the the, the match or let's finish the movie, we can pray later, we can pray later or let's go to this restaurant, it doesn't matter if they serve alcohol, it's fine, everybody goes there. These friends are dragging you towards Jahannam without you even realising. So when you find a friend that encourages you, that, oh, Sana alaikum Zainab, did you pray Fajr today? Or, you know, you have a WhatsApp group and you encourage one another, let's read half a Juz of Quran today, let's read one Juz today, how much the have you done today? Um, all of these things play such an important role because we are social beings, we weren't created to live alone. That's not the way that we are. We like being around people and we like being around people that bring out the best in us. So seek out those people and compete with them. Like two of the the, the best examples that I can think of are Abu Bakr and Umar. uh, They were, after the Prophet, the best of creation. Abu Bakr has been referred to in in the Quran as the second of the two. You know, the best friend of the Prophet, the very first person that succeeded him as a Khalifa. And Umar, you know, everybody knows about the virtues of Umar. The Prophet said that if there was to be a prophet after me, it would have been Umar. Because of the unshakable faith that he had and how firm he was upon the truth. Which is why he got the nickname al farooq As in he was a criterion between good and bad. He would never settle and he would never give way to anything that was bad. Now, these two individuals, Abu Bakr and Umar, even they, despite being in the company of the Prophet, despite being the best of people, used to motivate one another. They would compete with one another. Allah says in the Qur'an, فَاسْتَبِقُوا فِي That race in goodness. That don't think of life as, you know... See, when it comes to the dunya, we're always competing one one another. You'll see sisters competing with sisters and cousins with cousins and neighbors with neighbors. You want your children to go to a better school than them. You want your child to graduate in a better degree than them. You want your house to be, you know, have more bedrooms than theirs and you want your husband's car to be nicer than... Them. We're always competing, always But when it comes to the the, the deen, nobody wants to compete. We always try and look for people that are lower than us so we feel better about ourselves. That you know what, so what if I pray three salahs? You know that that my neighbor of mine, she only prays one. We always look to people that are lower than us in the deen because somehow it makes us feel good. But if you want to get closer to Allah and you know on this journey to Allah, you want it to be like a fruitful journey, you're gonna have to find people that motivate you to be better than who you currently are. People that pray more Qur'an than you, people that dress more modestly than you, people that you know pray more nawafil than you, that give more charity than you. Look for these characteristics. Once the Prophet ﷺ, he, he announced to his sahaba uh, that he was preparing for a battle and he wanted money for charity. So Abu Bakr went to his home and Umar ﷺ went to his home. And Umar radiallahu anhu thought to himself that you know what, today I'm in a position in my life where I've got a bit of money. So today is the day that I am going to surpass Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, because he's always outdoing me. Like, whenever I want to do something good, Abu Bakr is always there, he's always like at the forefront of good. Today, I want to be that person, and again, this is healthy competition, healthy motivation. So, he went home and he thought about this and he had this plan. So, he took everything that he had in his home, literally, and he split it in half. So, 50, you imagine, you know, some of you here just say you're on 20,000 pounds a year to bring 50% of that and hand it over to. Allah and his messenger you know 10,000 is a lot of money 50% of whatever you have whatever you earn if your house is worth 100,000 you bring 50,000 to the masjid is a massive thing that's what Umar Allah, anhu did and he came and you know he was happy that you know today is the day that I'm going to beat Abu Bakr and he came and the Prophet ﷺ asked Umar Umar what have you left you know for your family and he said whatever I bought you here I have left the same at home as in I've split it equally and the Prophet ﷺ was happy then Abu Bakr came and he presented what he had bought for the charity. And the Prophet asked him, oh Abu Bakr, what have you left for your family? And he said, I have left Allah and his messenger for, the, for my family. Meaning everything that he had, 100% of everything that he had, he handed over with full iman and trust that Allah will suffice me. The way that the birds go out in the morning and their stomachs are empty, knowing that when they come home, their stomachs will be full. This is how the Sahaba were. That innocence of you know, purity and childhood and iman and trust the Sahaba had. And at the same time, they competed with one another. And this was, you know, there's other examples where Abu Bakr and Umar they did this. So find friends that will sort of encourage you in that regard. And especially now that Ramadan is coming up, it's an excellent way. You know, we have no excuse now. The world has become like a, a global village. You can find Facebook groups where you know like-minded sisters are competing in reading the Qur'an. Or you can set up WhatsApp groups where you're memorizing one line of Qur'an a day. There's so much that you can do and it's so easy. It's just about, is there anybody out there that is going to take out the time and that wants to strengthen this relationship with Allah. And the next thing I would say is this concept of questioning and curiosity. Children have this amazing sort of ability that everything, you know, interests them. We are people that nothing interests us unless it's something that is full of immorality. So you want to find the novels that are the least Islamic because that's what interests you. Or we want to watch the TV programs that are the least Islamic and full of the most immorality because that's what interests us. Whereas children, though, they find interest in anything. You can give them, you know, one child, you can buy them a £50 toy from Toys R Us and give it to them, and you can give another child an empty box, and the one with the box will probably be happier than the other one. Children will take anything and they are inquisitive and they are curious and they question and question and question, as parents will know, especially once they reach one, two, three years old, their favourite question is why. And we need to Ask, why aren't we like that though? Why as humans do we not question when it comes to our religion? Why do we not want to know who is Allah? What does Al-Kareem mean? What does uh, Dhul Arsh Al-Majeed mean? What does Allah mean? What does this uh, verse in the Quran mean? Why do we pray, um, face the Qibla when we pray Salah? Or why do we, why did the Prophet have this and this and this? So many questions, like literally millions, that probably come to your mind. But because from a young age you stifle them and stifle them and stifle them, now if I ask, uh, and I experience this, you know, when I when I teach at, at a Sufa, I see that the when I used to teach the part-time Anamiya course, there used to be uh, uh, students of very different ages there. And the teenagers there, the ones who were 15, 16, 17, they're still, they've still got this a bit of curiosity in them because you know they're at school and they're a lot closer to the innocence of childhood whereas the ones that are older they like it's almost as if when I ask them I'm teaching them hadith and I ask them what do you think this hadith means or what do you think the Prophet was trying to say here the older ones will not even try like it's so hard to get anything out of them and you know sometimes I ask them look Allah tells you in the Quran to think and to reflect and ponder and question and I'm asking you, I'm trying to force you to to think and you're, you're not doing so and one of them, you know, bless her when I was speaking to her, she goes "Look, Ustada, I think she's in her 50s, maybe late 50s she goes, look, it's not my fault I can't help it I have been taught never to question my religion you know, I'm a firm believer I am happy with my religion but when you ask me to think about the Quran and the Hadith I can't do it because I've been taught to accept things the way that they are And I can understand that, you know, there are people, of course, like when you're younger, you're taught to do things and not really question it. But my argument is that that is not the right way to do things. That is for our children. That's not the way that we should be teaching them. You can't expect them, especially children, now that they're going to school and they're being exposed to X, Y, Z and on their, you know, fingertips, they've got the phones and so many different things that they are being exposed to. You can't expect them to be firm believers in Islam if you haven't told them why they're doing the things that they're doing. It's just not possible anymore. And this idea of questioning has to be built up. You know, when your child questions you, even about the most like silly of things or the most mundane of things, don't ever put them down is you want to create children that are inquisitive and curious because those are the children or those are the people that are the closest to Allah because they look at the signs of Allah around them. They look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees and the eyes and they will question how is it that Allah, how is it that all of this came into creation without a purpose? This is the one question that Allah talks about in the Quran that the people who believe and the angels and the people of taqwa and iman they look around themselves and they bear testimony Thou, Allah, you could not have created all of this just for nothing and this is a result of curiosity we, you know, go to work and we come back or you go to school and you... And we don't ever stop and think and appreciate, you know, something small like, you know, a dandelion maybe or even a blade of grass or the beauty of a flower. You know, I know we live in sort of in Birmingham, there's not much to see. You kind of have to go out into the countryside to really reconnect with nature. But it's possible, even going to the park, even going to your back garden, there is so much that you can find that will make you think about the beauty of Allah and what Allah has given us. And if this is something that is so great and intricate like the bee for example you know everybody's got a garden everybody's seen a bee you know we're all probably scared of bees but if we even for a minute did research or thought about the precise nature of this bumblebee the way that it works and the way that it's created and this colony that it has and how they go around and you know the structure of the queen bee and all of the soldier bees and they create honey and Even that, a person could spend their whole lifetime studying and it would lead you back to the same thing. That, oh Allah, you haven't created this world for just amusement and play. There is a purpose and a design behind all of this. Everything leads you back to Allah. So like the child, they are constantly thinking about things around them and why, why, why whying. Adults need to sort of revive that in them. And you're going to have to find people that can support you in that because you might have questions and you might go to somebody that hasn't studied the religion or has studied the religion but maybe not properly and you go and ask them and they leave you more confused than you were to begin with it sort of dampens your confidence so you have to find teachers you have to, you know, put in a bit of effort and find people that you trust, that you're confident with, that when you've got questions, you ask them and you know that this will uh, strengthen your relationship with Allah. And there are many people out there, especially, you know, Alhamdulillah, living in, in the UK now, there's a revival of so many English-speaking scholars, male and female, that that can that have the, the, the answers to the questions that people might have. And Allah talks about in the Quran, when he talks about the people that really know allah allah said that those people who really truly fear allah are the scholars now why why is that why is it that a scholar of islam an alim or an alima or even you know a person that has studied about allah and his messenger why do they fear allah more than a general person is because they reflect more about allah the more you know about the names of Allah, and the more you know about the translation of the Quran, and the more you know about the perfection of the seerah of the Prophet, ﷺ, the more you are going to be forced to, forced to admit that the religion of Allah is true, and that Allah is true, and that Allah is one. And all of these things are gonna lead you to a stronger conviction in your Lord which is why this ayah that I've just read, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ min مِنْ al Ulama is sandwiched in between ayahs that talk about the animals that Allah has created and before it Allah talks about the mountains. That have you looked at the way that Allah has created the mountains? They are of differing colours. So you look at the mountain tracks, some are red, some are white, some are yellow, some are black. You look at animals that Allah has created of different colours and backgrounds and purposes. And right in the middle of that, Allah is talking about the ulama, fearing Allah. So fearing Allah doesn't come from necessarily studying books, but it comes from studying the creation of Allah. And that's something accessible to everybody. You know, you can, rather than spending 10, 15 minutes on, on YouTube, just Googling like nonsense things, you can use that time to Google, you know, the the astronomy, for example, think about, you know, watch those videos where the scientists, they talk about how great the universe and how great the galaxy and the Milky Way and the sun is compared to the size of Earth. It puts your whole life into perspective that we are literally like a speck in this you know, vast, you know, oasis that we have out there. We're almost nothing. So if this is how great our, the things around us are, how great must be the one who created all of this? So that's the Second to last point that I wanted to mention. And the last one is du'a. So we mentioned that if you're looking for a lost item, yes, retrace your footsteps. Retrace yourself back to that time in your childhood where you were so happy with who you were and you were so reliant upon Allah and you loved all of the symbols of Allah and that faith that you had. You need to revive that. Then you need to ask people around you, like you've lost an item. You're going to ask your family members, have you seen my phone? Have you seen this? Ask the people of uh, the, of Islam. Allah even says in the Quran, ahla la Ask the people of remembrance. If you don't know, you're not expected to know. Nobody here is expected to know everything. Every teacher has a teacher and every teacher has a teacher. Therefore, if you don't know, be comfortable in going out and asking people about things, especially to do with your religion. And the last thing which we didn't mention is to make a dua. That when you've lost something and you are looking for it, it might be a diamond ring that you've lost or something valuable or something not valuable, we often forget this key thing, which is nothing can be found unless Allah allows it to be found. Likewise, nothing would have been lost in the first place without the decree of Allah. So if you want something and you want this relationship with Allah to be rekindled and restarted and revived, you can't do it without going through Allah. It's not going to happen. Like Allah says, you take the first step and I will make things easy for you. If you want Allah to put barakah into your life and into your homes and into your heart, you're going to have to ask Him first. You're going to have to pour out your heart in prayer, in sujood, in tahajjud, in whenever you get a chance to be alone with Allah and ask Allah to give you the ability to find Him, to worship Him and to recognize Him and His signs and that dua is going to be the most powerful weapon that you have compared to everything that we've mentioned b- before all of that you can say is pending all of these things that we could take none of them will come to any fruition if you haven't asked for the help of Allah first though Allah I want to come back to you please facilitate it for me please make it easy for me then you start your journey then you start you know asking other people and you start you know studying and all of these things but the foundation is Asking Allah because there is no way to Allah except through Him. Like Allah says in the Quran, that there is no refuge from Allah except in Him. Like if we're, you know, in a human way, if you're trying to run away from somebody, somebody that is hurting you or tyrannizing you, you're gonna run in the opposite direction of them. But when it comes to Allah, It doesn't matter where you go. In order to get back to him or to away from him. There's nowhere that you can go that is not encompassed by Allah. Okay, so um, the last thing that I'm going to think of, uh, talk about is, we mentioned dua, okay, so on that note, there's many du'as that, that are obviously scattered throughout the Quran, throughout the hadith that we should be learning. The best the du'as are obviously the ones that have been tried and tested by the prophets themselves. So Allah teaches us in the Quran how to make du'a and those are the best du'as. Obviously you're not limited to those, sometimes you might have a yearning or a desire within yourself that you want to express in your own language you can do that you know in the hajjud or in your nafal salahs, in sujood etc you know talk to Allah and if Arabic isn't your first language or you don't know Arabic then you do it in your own language but Allah chose Arabic to be his language in revelation of the Quran so we try our best to do du'as in Arabic and from amongst those du'as the best of ones are the ones found in the Quran and one dua that sort of summarizes everything that we've said today is Allah talks about in the Quran that O people, antum al-fuqara ilallah, that O people, you are all poor and needy and dependent of Allah, on Allah. You know, a fakir. Even in like Urdu or Bengali, I'm not sure the word fakir is used for a poor person. Somebody that begs on the road is a fakir, and Allah is telling us that all of you lot are faqirs You are fuqara. You are poor and destitute, and you have nothing. You are completely reliant and dependent upon Allah and the sooner we realise that and the sooner we put our trust in the one who in whose hands trust should be given, the easier it will be for us to discover our own purpose, that who we are is not, everything that we have today is not a result of our own actions. That the money that I am bringing home, putting on the table is not a result of me going out to work. And nor is it a result of my degree. And the children that I have and the house that I have and the family that I have are nothing. It's not a result of my actions. It's a result of Allah giving me and bestowing upon me. When we recognize that we are like insignificant almost, you will recognize how significant Allah is. And when you recognize this difference between Allah and you... And then you understand how much Allah still invests into us and reaches out to us and calls out to us and accepts us and loves us. Then you realize really that this is, you know, subhanAllah, a relationship that is of no comparison. Because you realize how far below you are of ever, you know, even calling out to Allah that we are so unworthy But still, Allah gives us chance and chance and chance. And the more you realize how insignificant you are, the more Allah will raise you in honor. And this is something that we only find in the religion. We don't find it anywhere else. The more you lower yourself, the more you put yourself down in sujood and rub your nose in the dust in front of Allah, the more Allah will elevate your status uh, in front of him and in front of the people that matter. So the dua that I wanted to mention is If you get a chance please google it Find it you know in the Quran or at home Where this is the dua that Shoaib al islam he made That oh Allah I am in immense need Of whatever good you send to me and the more we read that, the more we read that, Inshallah, Allah will make this journey back to him easier and facilitate it for us. Jazakumullah khair for your attendance. May Allah accept it from all of us. Um, and reunite us in this dunya and reunite us in Jannat al-Firdaus. Ameen.